Chapter 12, To Love and Be Loved My life was humming along happily enough. Then one day in 1959, I received a phone call from a man named Sidney Cohen. He brought me greetings from a mutual friend with whom he worked in his office in Toronto and said that I came highly recommended to have a date with him. He was in Montreal on a new business assignment, and would I meet him? He sounded rather pleasant on the phone, and on a whim I said yes. Without realizing it, I suggested an expensive restaurant, and Sidney and I spent a most enjoyable dinner with wine and all the trimmings conversing the whole time. I remember that dinner cost $25, a lot of money in those days. The story of this expensive dinner date would become a family legend, and I would be referred to, jokingly, as the gold digger date. Sidney and I parted amicably, and he asked if he could call me again. I said yes. His new assignment would bring him to Montreal for one week a month until the project was finished. Sidney was working for Southern Business Publications as a market research and sales rep. He had a diploma in radio broadcasting and wanted to study further, but his widowed mother could not afford to help him to get a higher education. He had initially looked for employment in the advertising business, but at that time people with names like Cohen were not welcome in that industry. Our relationship deepened. I invited Sidney to our home where he met Avi and could enjoy her cooking, especially her soups. He told us that he grew up during the Depression years on bread and soups. Avi's soups are excellent, Sid declared, and Avi beamed. Ours turned out to be a long-distance courtship, and I traveled to Toronto to meet and get to know his widowed mother, Sari, and his brother and sister-in-law, Leon and Adele, and their young daughter, Kathy. Sidney Jessel Cohen and I married one and a half years after we met on June 9, 1961, in Montreal in a rabbi's study with two witnesses from the family. A ceremony was followed by a dinner with eight close friends and then a modest wedding party at the Capri Hotel where we danced with joy. There were 50 young friends and very few elderly people, except for our old friends, the Vertesh family. Marci, Lili, Gobi, and Agi recently arrived from Hungary. This was a typical Holocaust survivor's wedding in those days. In addition to creating my beautiful three-piece wedding dress, Avi covered the cost of the drinks as a wedding gift, and the late Sam Balderman, who along with his wife Yvonne, were close friends, played dance music with his small band as his gift to us. Sid's mom, my late and beloved mother-in-law, 
organized a beautiful party in her home in Toronto for the Jessel and Cole families. The arrangements were perfect. We were happy. For honeymoon, we drove east through New England and the maritime provinces ending up in Glacebay, Nova Scotia, the birthplace of Sid's father and where all his co-uncles, aunts, and cousins had grown up. A few of them still lived there, and I met Sid's very elderly co-grandmother. I, who had lost most of my extended family and much of my immediate family in the Holocaust, was rather appreciative of Sid's family. Our honeymoon introduced me to another part of Canada and was filled with new discoveries. It was a sweet, romantic, unique, and meaningful trip. Back in Toronto, we started our married life living in Surrey in her home in the Bathurst Manor neighborhood. Later, Surrey moved into a lovely, newly decorated bachelor suite, and Sid and I rented an apartment a few blocks from where she lived so that we could be in close contact with her at all times. It took me some years to get used to living in Toronto. It was so different from my beloved, vibrant, exciting Montreal that I had come to cherish. I missed Avi and felt guilty about leaving her alone in Montreal, in spite of knowing that she had a circle of close friends. I tried to persuade her to move to Toronto, but she said she had all her friends there. Not only that, visiting me would be a nice change for her. This became particularly true when we had children. Avi adored them, and they reciprocated with hugs and kisses. When she visited, when they were older, they would step into the house after school and start yelling joyfully, Aunt Eva is here! They could smell the mouth-watering aromas from her baking and cooking wafting through the house. Avi was always included in our travels abroad and came along whenever she felt like it. Moving to Toronto, I also left behind a number of longtime friends like Dinah and Abe Schuster and Andy and Maggie Towsing and their children with whom I had forged strong ties. I was the maid of honor at Dinah Schuster's wedding. She passed away recently, and I lost a very dear friend. With them and others, I had shared left-wing ideas and political activities at the Uchbo. These activities had stopped in 1956, shortly after the truth about the Stalinist regime's brutality became known to the world, but our friendships endured. I am still in touch with a few of these friends today, 60 years later. Also enduring is my strong belief in the need for social and economic justice in our society. Social democracy is still my favorite ideology. As Sid and I built our new life in Toronto, our priorities became clear. 
Having such a small, immediate family, I wanted to develop closer relationships with my in-laws, especially after we had children. We made a point of getting together with Leon and Adele and their daughter Kathy, and later Natalie, on major Jewish holidays and sometimes on birthdays, or for casual visits. The kids loved celebrations, and we wanted to pass on the traditions. Sadly, Leonard Dale passed away a few years ago. I also wanted to get back to work. This may sound strange, but in Toronto at that time, nobody wanted to hire a female assistant property manager, even one with bookkeeping knowledge. I learned to drive, thinking this might make finding a job easier. In the end, I settled for working as a bookkeeper only, occasionally helping the co-owner of a large apartment building with management duties. I left this job eventually to find something closer to where I lived, doing similar work on a smaller scale for two very pleasant elderly Jewish gentlemen, one of them a Holocaust survivor and by then pretty well-to-do. With amusement, I recall how they tried to convince me to buy shares in Xerox, predicting a very handsome return eventually. Were they ever correct? But for us borrowing that kind of money, $2,000 to invest, was out of reach. I left this job two weeks before I gave birth to our daughter, Michelle Elizabeth, in 1964. We named her after my late beloved mother, Margit, and my sister, Bershke Elizabeth, in English. With time, I learned to love and beloved again, and had the courage to grow branches on my shattered family tree. Four years after Michelle's birth, we adopted our son Jonathan Alexander, who was named after Sid's father and my father, Shandor. I stayed at home for 12 years, enjoying raising the children with a lot of help from Sid. He was always a most loving, considerate husband and father, enchanting all of us every Valentine's Day with funny and loving hand-drawn greetings pinned on our bedroom doors, an everlasting memory of childhood for Michelle and Jonathan. He also understood my needs. He never shied away from washing the kitchen floor when I was pregnant or from cooking dinners. My mother-in-law had told me at the very beginning, you'll see, Judy, he will be a very good husband because he was always a very good and helpful son. Sari had been widowed at 30 when her husband Nathan died of a rare type of leukemia at the age of 38. Leon was 12 and Sid 10. Tragically, Sari died of lung cancer at the age of 59, so young. Michelle was 6 and Jonathan 2 when she died and our children missed out on having the only grandparent they had known accompany them to their adulthood. It would have been an important relationship for them emotionally. 
My main activities after the children start at school were connected to their development. I dealt with the schools and their studies, their teachers, extracurricular activities, and other educational matters. The idea of multiculturalism was just starting to emerge in our predominantly Anglo-Saxon culture and in school with students coming from varied ethnic and cultural backgrounds. I watched closely as my children were part of that trend. I also became part of a group of women that was lobbying for French immersion programs in public schools. Looking to the future, I thought that being bilingual in Canada would have advantages. Plus, learning two languages is good for brain development. So we were told by the experts. I, who had been exposed to two foreign languages from first grade on, knew from experience how helpful it could be to master as many languages as possible. Finally, a program was established in our school district when Jonathan had just reached the age for enrollment. Michelle, almost four years older, missed out on it. Satisfying as all that was, at one point I started to crave activities that would enhance my leisure time. So I enrolled in a university extension course and studied cultural anthropology. After that, at the urging of my friend Honey Ross, we both enrolled at the Ontario College of Art, now called the Ontario College of Art and Design, or OCAD, to study pottery. Kneading the rich, dark clay was a remarkable way to relieve the frustrations we encountered at home. And I found great satisfaction in learning to create hand-built items using my imagination and newly learned skills. I pursued this for a good number of years, and I still have a few pieces to remind me of this creative period in my life. At another studio, I learned to do raku pottery using a Japanese firing process, which eventually became my favorite endeavor. As a family, we tried to have fun times too, and at one stage, camping seemed to be the way to do it. During long car rides, Jonathan, who was an accomplished reader by age four, would happily keep occupied with a dozen books. Michelle would stay busy with her Barbie dolls or would nap. On these trips, we met congenial and interesting people. Campers are a special breed, aware and appreciative of nature in the raw and mindful of taking good care of it. Sid was one of these people and inculcated the same reverence for nature in the children. Michelle especially became a nature lover like Sid. Often we would meet up with some of our friends from Montreal on these camping trips. These were truly grand times exploring new terrain in the USA and Canada, in inclement or pleasant weather conditions, 
and ending our days with sumptuous dinners in the evenings. Our friend's older daughter, Sharon Schuster, a young teenager then, would play the guitar and we would all sing folk songs we knew so well and drank Andy Talsik's excellent wine. Our camping trips ended when the children got older and we bought a cottage on Gala Lake. Winter was a favorite time to go up north. The terrain was covered in pristine white snow, not like in the city, and trees glistened with frozen water drops. It was magical and delighted the children. In autumn, the grounds were covered with incredibly colorful leaves like a beautifully woven carpet. In summer, the lake was the attraction. Sid and Michel loved to canoe on the lake and listen to the loons in the early morning when it was quiet. Jonathan and I often went raspberry picking, covered in netted heads for protection from mosquitoes. Friends would come up to visit and stay overnight for a few poker games. Looking back, this was an easy, enjoyable phase in our lives, even with the occasional bickering that was inevitable as the kids asserted themselves more and more. This time, too, came to an end when the children no longer wished to spend their weekends away from their friends in the city, but were too young to be left at home on their own. We sold the cottage and used the money to move to an area of the city where our children wanted to go to school. When we moved, we also joined Temple Emmanuel, a reform congregation. Jonathan enjoyed their youth group and summer camp, and Sid and I made new friends in the congregation. I loved the liturgical music of the services ever since I was a young girl in Debrecen, and I was always interested in current social and political issues and had ample opportunity to become active on the social action, adult education, and Israel committees. When Jonathan turned 13 in 1981, we decided to have his bar mitzvah in Israel at the Kotel, the Western Wall. Avi and Leslie joined us, and it was an unforgettable experience. We visited Moshav Neviot on the banks of the Red Sea, south of Ilat, an area that was then under the control of Israel. While the braver family members went on camel rides, I toured a large part of the Sinai Peninsula, and at one point our group was hosted by a Bedouin shepherd and his grandson who served us the most delicious spice tea. These are cherished memories, both because of the personal experiences we had and because we were witnessing the revival of the Jewish peoplehood and the incredible progress Israel was making as a country. Sadly, the much-desired peace with the Palestinian neighbors is not a reality just yet. Life wasn't always smooth sailing. In 1989, our first post-Holocaust tragedy struck. 
My dearly beloved sister Amy died after a relatively short illness. Complications arising from skin cancer, a blood transfusion got terribly wrong. She was the first death Leslie and I had to deal with after the Holocaust. Losing her was extremely painful and still is. I have never stopped missing her and never will. Five years after Avi's death, Leslie, my last living sibling, died of lung cancer. There was nobody left for me to reminisce and laugh with about our childhood shenanigans, a void nothing can fill. As a Holocaust survivor, I broached my personal story with my children when it was age-appropriate, first during a Passover dinner, connecting the topics of slavery and freedom to what happened to me as a young teenager, explaining why they didn't have grandparents from my side and trying to satisfy their frequent questions. I tried not to traumatize them with horror stories. I didn't want them to fear being Jewish. Child-rearing is a delicate and complicated endeavor, and parents are never quite ready for it. As the saying goes, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems, and I found the young adult face difficult to handle. I was always worried about drugs. This was after LSD was popularized in the 1960s by Harvard psychologist Timothy Leary, which, as we were told, produced vivid hallucinations. The 1960s and 70s produced an entire counterculture of drug abuse that I constantly dreaded. Somehow, my acculturation didn't cover this. The youth culture was changing and rough, vulgar, disrespectful language entered mainstream communication and was acquired from school buddies and other influences. I often clashed with Michelle and this was a frustrating time for me. I was still very much a European and remembered the way I was brought up. But Sid, a second-generation Canadian, took this in stride and would try to calm me down. There was a culture crash in my own family. I didn't seem to have the right tools to analyze, comprehend, and compromise. Much later, when Michelle was around 20, she said something very profound. You know why you couldn't handle me when I was a defiant teenager? Because by the time you reached 16, you had no parents to rebel against. Indeed, my sweet 16 was spent in the shadow of the gas chambers where my parents had been murdered a few months earlier without even graves where I could place little memory stones. Jonathan was a calm and pliable individual who disliked arguments of all kinds. At age 17, he came out and told us that he was gay. While at home, we fully supported him with love and understanding, 
Like most young people at that time, he suffered from discrimination and exclusion by his peers. However, Michel, then a college student who had a summer job in social work, helped him to find a group where he could get counseling, and slowly his emotional equilibrium and self-confidence was strengthened. The time eventually came when I felt the need to ease back into work, and I ended up working in a public relations company's accounting department four days a week for 11 years. It was good for me. I met people much younger than I was, hard workers who were vibrant, intelligent, and funny. Most believed implicitly in the value of their work and their zest for life and fun was catchy. I also met people from different backgrounds. Michio, a young Japanese-Canadian woman, and Judy Lam, a Chinese-Canadian woman. With these friendships, my horizons expanded and my social world was enriched. Judy would tell me about Chinese customs and her parents' difficult and dangerous wartime experiences in mainland China. She in turn learned about my Holocaust horror stories. We learned from each other how widespread the hate, destruction, and suffering was during the World War II era, both in the Far East and in Europe. Judy and I are still in touch, sending each other greetings on birthdays. In addition to my work, I volunteered with Alzheimer patients at the Baker Center for Geriatric Care. Dealing with these patients, even in the earlier stages of their illness, was heartbreaking. But it was uplifting when I felt I made a difference. I still spoke Hungarian well, and I was able to converse with some of the patients who, because of their Alzheimer's, reverted to their native Hungarian. With the passing of time, our children became adults and attended to their university studies and their futures. Michelle grew into a lovely, enterprising, and intelligent young woman who was actively involved in social issues, which pleased me. Economic justice and gender equality were her major concerns, and she ended up interrupting her doctoral studies to work for a major Canadian trade union. Politically, we were on the same page, and I learned a great deal from her. She later supported my efforts to create a website on the issue of women in the Holocaust, a theme she had written about in her master thesis. But there was always tension between us, and I sometimes wonder if it is because I am or am considered a damaged Holocaust survivor. Jonathan, always a good student, sailed through the French immersion stream and eventually got two degrees, including a law degree, and began to work as a technical and promotional writer. He also has a published book under his belt. To this day, we have a loving and mutually respectful relationship 
and he often calms me down when I get unduly irritated by what he calls inconsequential issues. Sydney worked at Southern for 30 years and at Key Media, where he developed a magazine called Where, a travel guide that was used internationally. He had a stellar reputation in the Canadian business press and won several awards. Those were the times when one could achieve advancement, recognition, and success through sheer hard work, ambition, a good dose of intelligence, producing innovative ideas, and offering loyalty to a company without any university degrees. Sid was with Key Media for 17 years until he retired. When I finally reached the age when company policy dictated that I had to retire, I was ready. I received the usual gift, the customary party, and said goodbye to PR work and to my delightful co-workers, just as one time, way back when, I said goodbye to prize committee members in a dress factory in Montreal. It was my 65th birthday, September 17, 1993.